Week 7, Session 2 From Words to Works Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. James 3.13 Information Overload Christians, particularly those in the first world context, are some of the most informed people on the planet. When it comes to the beliefs, history, and practice of their faith, they tend to be overflowing with knowledge. Every week they hear sermons, download podcasts, attend studies, and do courses. But obviously, not all that learning is landing. We don't live out anywhere near as much teaching as we listen and agree to. This means we are educated way beyond the level of our obedience. There's only so much processing power our minds can harness at any one time, and this is affected by our stress levels, tiredness, our levels of optimism, as well as our actual interest in the topic itself. If all our mental capacity is utilised in listening and disseminating knowledge, then there'll be little left to figure out how to apply it. And so, what we do is seek a prescription, a formula, a proven method with which we can change our life. Once we agree with a concept, we want the surefire solution to land it. Marketers know this, and so they spend time developing their advertising, building the dream, assembling a picture of how your life could look. They convince you with specific and attractive information that your life lacks certain elements. For example, that you need a car that can carry both the kids in safety and climb the face of a cliff, or that you need to start your day with a certain set of vitamins. You agree with the facts because they are compelling and subconsciously you are prepared to act on a solution. And of course, the solution suddenly appears for you. The product or widget that is being advertised is the answer to your newly discovered problem. Marketers know that once we identify a gap in our lives, we want answers. We don't particularly want to go through the discovery process of finding those answers. We rely on the experts for that. What we want is the bottom line, the remedy, the fix-all. They are relying on the fact that your mind is full of information or an attractive desire and you're ready to jump immediately to the end. We do this in our life of faith as well, except the solutions aren't usually presented as promptly as they are in advertisements. What we can do is hear a new truth, believe it, feel either convicted or inspired by the need to live our lives differently, but within a few days revert to our previous habits. Our minds become full of other things. New things, old things, immediate and urgent things, and so the true and important things are relegated to the back of our minds. This puts us in the most perilous of situations, made even worse by the fact that it feels just like life as usual. What has happened is the truth has been sown and believed but not applied. This makes us, in some small way, an expert, someone who knows it all and doesn't need to hear it again. So we become a little more immune to it each time the truth is heard. We listen, nod our head, even say amen, then walk away unchanged. Eventually, we become less aware of the difference between our beliefs and our reality until we begin to verge over into hypocrisy, which is judging ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. We might believe in the empowerment that comes from an intimate walk with God, but retain a schedule that's too busy. We might believe pornography or adultery destroys our soul and yet put no mechanism in place to shut that door in our life. We might believe in the validity of a miraculous life but balk at the lifestyle and mind shifts that cultivate that environment. As we've discovered in this information revolution, more knowledge isn't the answer to every problem. In fact, the amount of knowledge bombarding us each day has become part of the problem. 
There is just so much information available to us. Some important, some trivial, some current, some redundant, some accurate, some inaccurate, some relevant, most irrelevant. Yet it all comes at the same rate and with the same cry for attention. It's up to us to wade through it and retain what's valuable. After all that, who has time to apply any of the countless non-negotiable must-dos of 21st century life? Who has time to process properly what God might be saying to us when his voice is usually quieter than the surrounding junk noise of our existence? Wisdom, the application of truth. The gap we've highlighted is the distance between truth and life, between knowing something and applying it. It is the gap between the world of often clinical ideas and the world of gritty imperfection. Unfortunately, simply knowing something does not mean we can live that knowledge out. Throughout this course, we've referenced Jesus' parable of the sower. In it, he describes the problem of those who hear but can't understand. He describes them as hard paths, a place where God's word is provided but snatched away by the proverbial birds of distraction. The core of the problem, Jesus says, is that of understanding, or the lack of it. He says the person does not understand, and so the word is snatched away. He is differentiating between hearing information and understanding it. Now, in the scriptures, understanding is quite different from comprehension. The people Jesus is describing in Matthew 13 have heard the message. In fact, if you read the whole passage, they've heard it repeatedly, and in their heads, they comprehend what God's saying, yet they don't understand it. That's because understanding is the ability to appropriate knowledge, to apply it. Understanding, in this context, is another word for wisdom. The scriptures often differentiate between knowledge and wisdom. Passages like Proverbs 4 verse 5 define wisdom's virtue, saying, Get wisdom, get understanding, do not forget my words or swerve from them. It says, Wisdom is what joins the action with ideas. Don't swerve from my words, it says. It highlights the idea of an often absent link between ideas and practice, the absence of wisdom. The New Testament is even clearer. James 3 verse 13 says, Confrontingly, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James is saying, Show me what you believe by the way you live. Show me the type of life you live, and I'll show you the type of wisdom you have. Live like the rest of the fallen people on earth, then you have earthly wisdom. Live according to God's truth, and you have godly wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply truth, whatever version of truth it is that you believe. When we begin to look afresh at scripture for this extra element in spiritual life, you can see it everywhere. Sometimes it's called wisdom, sometimes understanding, and sometimes you just see its results. Moses, for example, is a man of wisdom. He was, in his day, the one person who had heard God's moral truth and best applied it. Moses did God's will, and not just morally, but powerfully as well. In Psalm 103 verse 7, it says, God had made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The people saw what God did, his works. But Moses had insight into God's character, his ways, his wisdom, his method for turning the words into works. This made Moses' life powerful. Wisdom is the ability to process truth and land it in a real-world context. The ability to live a kingdom lifestyle on earth relies on wisdom. Christians can tend to be dualistic in their worldview, separating the unseen spiritual realm from the earthly material realm, but wisdom 
is what joins the two. The original created order described in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 shows how that would work. God delegated authority to humanity to bring kingdom order and values to the earth. They were to care for the creation, care for each other, live justly, and be free to exercise creativity. They were to show what the kingdom looks like to the material world. That would mean that as the population multiplied, there would be loving relationships cultivated, that villages, regions, and even organizations were managed well, that art and music were valued, that resources were shared, that the planet was stewarded well, that God was welcome and listened to continually. It meant that spiritual reality became earthly reality, that what was desired and done in heaven was desired and done on earth. Jesus reconfirmed that model when he said that our prayers should be kingdom prayers. Remember Matthew 6.10, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The new heaven and earth described in Revelation chapter 21 shows that God's plan has not been forgotten. We will be back, God will have his way, and we will live in this kingdom reality forever. Wisdom, when developed in our life, lets heaven get a grip on earth. It's the interface between words and works, and wisdom destroys the dualism between spiritual and natural. Wisdom embraces the fact that everything is spiritual. That includes what you say, what you do at work, how you raise your children, how you manage finance, how you recycle rubbish, how you conduct a business meeting, how you eat and exercise. Everything is spiritual. Everything is connected to a kingdom value. Jesus said that whatever you bind or loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven in Matthew 18, 18. He is saying there is a partnership in place between the unseen and the seen, and we are to discern what is happening and what are the priorities of heaven, and then make them the priorities and actions of our lives. Revelation If you've struggled to apply something that you know is true and necessary in your life, chances are you need a little wisdom. Solomon obviously recognized his need when faced with the daunting task of leading God's people. He didn't ask for power, wealth, or control, but for understanding. God gave it to him in abundance, granting a wise and understanding heart like none before or after. James 1.5 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom empowers you to make godly choices, to exercise your God-given freedom and self-control. One of our most prayed but least answered prayers is, God, show me what to do. One of our least prayed but most often answered prayers is, God, give me wisdom. Get wisdom and you'll know what to do. God wants you to have wisdom more than prescriptive direction. Galatians 4.7 says clearly, you are a son or a daughter, not a slave. Sons have choice. Slaves are told what to do. But how will you recognize wisdom when you have it? What will it look like? Well, we can easily identify how it affects our motivations. James 3.17 says that wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Wisdom is demonstrated in a heart that is at peace with God, with humanity, and with self, which is evidence of shalom. But remember, godly wisdom is rooted in heaven. 
It requires us to be able to perceive God's direction and cooperate with him so that it can be on earth as in heaven. And the reason Jesus had to explain the parable of the sower was because, as he said, though seeing, they do not see, though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And that's in Matthew 13, 13. Wisdom both requires and enables us to hear and process, to have revelation and application. Revelation is the often overlooked component of wisdom. It is the ability to get it, to not just know cognitively, but to embrace the truth deeply and in such a way that it bears natural fruit. If I have a revelation of God's love, I don't need to reason it out. I just know it and it changes me. Everything I do, everything I say to him is based in that unmovable revelation. If it is just knowledge, then I could probably be talked out of it or forget it. But revelation is an experience that molds my head and my heart. The Apostle Paul didn't shrink away from this. We can see that when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, a church that had turned its city upside down, a church that was probably the most healthy and powerful of its day, he still prayed that they would grow in the area that counted. He said in Ephesians 1.17, I pray that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He knew how incredibly important it was for every Christian to have God speak into their heart, because as Jesus said, The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In Paul's mind may have echoed the Old Testament word from God in Proverbs 29.18, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. For us to have a revelation about God's truth, we need to be exposed to it and we need to let it sink down into us. It requires us to grapple with the truth, to embrace its ramifications and let the spirit minister to us. It requires God to open our spiritual eyes and for us to ruminate slowly on what we see. As we will see this week, wisdom's close ally is time. Time with God and time to walk out what he is teaching us. Why don't you start by praying what Paul prayed, that God would give you an increased spirit of wisdom and revelation. If it's in scripture, we know it's true and can be prayed with faith and authority. The world was designed for wisdom. The world is crying out for wisdom. Let us work with God to be the answer to that cry. Your journal. There is no better time to ask for wisdom than right now. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of all wisdom, and you grant that wisdom to those who seek it. I seek it today. Grant me a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. I thank you that your word says I will receive this wisdom. I embrace it now. Thank you, God. Has God been granting you wisdom on an issue recently? 